Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Global equity markets continue to struggle and protests in China continue to surge, raising many concerns about energy demand and growth in the world's second largest economy. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm is back on the program to share her insights and perspectives on the global markets. With concerns swirling around energy right now, Denise lists top sectors in the global markets. She says those sectors are consumer discretionary, financial services, and mid-cap industrials and materials, specifically metals mining. Denise suggests investors should rotate some of their money out of the energy sector and into metals and mining. Denise also comments on a potential recession in 2023. She says a lot of people are using the inverted yield curve to predict a light recession next year. But the issue there, she says, is that there are a lot of tailwinds to combat the headwinds we are experiencing right now, which makes it difficult to predict how everything is going to play out in 2023. But Denise says there is a possibility that equities are already discounted for a possible recession next year. This podcast was reported on November 30th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with uh, the big news today, or the news hasn't exactly happened yet, but Jerome Powell is speaking in a few hours. Uh, What are you expecting him to say and uh, what are you looking for out of his speech? I have no idea what he's going to say, uh, so I can certainly say that. He'll say whatever he's going to say regarding inflation, and ultimately, I think what will move the markets is what happens with inflation, not necessarily what he says about it. But there's certainly uh, some debate about how hawkish he will be. And again, I think that there it's more likely that the Fed is going to rely on evidence, whether it be payrolls, whether it be inflation, to have them sort of firm up that commitment to a slower pace of rate hikes. So I think it's a little less about what he says and what the data becomes over the next, let's call it three to six months. Right. And and as you said, I mean, there is some sort of expectation or thinking, and again, you're right, you never know what's going to happen, but that maybe we're reaching a point where rate hikes are going to slow down. Uh, I think a lot of people previously had thought, you know, 4% would be a range, but um, but I guess we may exceed that. Who knows? But but do you think the pace is going to slow based on, you know, some of the data that you're seeing? They certainly tipped their hat and said that it would likely slow because they want to sort of create the ability for the Fed to look back on all the rate hikes that they've just done over the last year, given the fact that they know that those operate with a lag. Uh, And we're seeing those lags in real time. So I'll give you an example of a lag in real time, which is shelter costs. That is has been sort of the driving force behind the CPI and the PCE deflator. It's 40 percent of the CPI. Shelter costs have a long lag relative to any measure of rental inflation or housing prices. Ultimately, they true up to that. 
So when you see, and you know, I could I could actually have shown a chart of like Zillow rent prices versus the shelter component of the CPI or the PCE deflator, and you can see that that's still accelerating, and maybe a little bit of a downtick last month. But what you see upcoming is a real headwind for that shelter indicator. X that, so everything else in the CPI, X that shelter portion on a run rate basis, annualized run rate basis over the last three and six months, we're hovering around zero. So that says to me that not only have most prices already decelerated, but our run rate is not particularly inflationary. So you roll that forward through 2023. We're also seeing this in crude oil prices right now. You roll this forward in 2023. I think we have much, much less of an inflation problem than maybe the market or other market participants think. Um, I mean, what would that do for the markets? If, if, if It feels like people are really paying attention to that inflation number very carefully. And when you see you know things uh, a little improve a little bit, the markets seem to do a little bit better. Um, so if we start seeing this come down, what does that mean, do you think, for, for stocks in 2023? Yeah, in some ways, there's no univariate correlation with inflation in the markets, except at extremes, right? So if you want to sort of step back and say, when inflation is high and it decelerated to even just not high, which I think we're in the process of doing, you go from a situation where equities have 50-50 odds and like 0% returns, we're down 30. So we were much worse than that, to a situation where equities have 90% odds of going up and you know double-digit returns, so 16 to 20% on average. So this has definitely been a bullish setup for the market. I think that if you're looking for one true driver as to why that is the case, it's in real incomes for the U.S. consumer. If there has been one thing that's been actually different than the 1970s in terms of pasture inflation is that real incomes have been equally negative. That was actually not true in the 70s and 80s unless there was a recession, right? So we're not technically in a recession right now, meaning that we haven't had you know, a, a severe amount of job loss from that perspective. So we haven't lost any jobs, yet real incomes are deeply negative. If inflation decelerates, that has the potential to create a positive tailwind for the U.S. consumer that has not existed in the better part of a year and a half. So let's talk a bit about the recession. That is everyone's, you know, it's on everybody's mind. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, maybe have thought we'd see something by now. 2023 uh, is, again, a hard to predict the future. But what are your thoughts on whether there could be a recession, how deep it could be? What are you looking at? So it's very hard to predict the future. Uh, and it's even harder to predict stocks reaction to that future. So let's tackle both. So let's talk about the recession and then let's talk about stocks related to the recession call. Um, the recession is a tough one because in some ways we came from a situation where we did have two sequential declines in real GDP growth. In every prior instance where we've had that, that has been a recession. You can sort of call it a light recession without the fact that we had a new job. Now, we haven't seen anything like that before in the past, but we have seen situations of a mild recession like in the 70s where you never really had job loss, but you had an increase in the unemployment rate as people basically said, I'm out, I'm out of the labor force. Forget it, I'm going to stop looking because nobody's really hiring. So that's sometimes the way a light recession can go. Now, the problem with that light recession prediction, which you know a lot of people are using the inverted yield curve to sort of say that this is exactly what's going to happen in 2023. The problem with that is that we also now have a lot of tailwinds 
So when we just talked about it, which is the deceleration in inflation, which to me looks very likely. Now, maybe that doesn't look likely to everyone, but that looks very likely to me. And the stimulus we've just seen from what's called energy prices, which is a real tailwind for the U.S. consumer historically, and you can really measure it. So we've got some tailwinds to combat those headwinds. So it's it's hard to know where it's actually going to play out. Now, how that relates to the equity market, I think is much, much less clear. So I think people are relying on the fact that if you are approaching a recession in 2023, then let's look through history and say, well, stocks have never bottomed before a recession hit. They bottomed sort of like, you know, let's call it 25 to 50%, sometimes 75% of the way through a recession. So we're not there yet, so we can't have the low. But the problem with that is that I see it very differently in the data as well, in the sense that during any prior recessions, up until that point where you experienced a recession, stocks were only down 2%. We're down 30 So now you have this setup as to which historical fact would you like to rely more on. And when you have a sort of slim majority, and you can only swing the bat once every, call it five to 10 years from a business cycle perspective, I prefer not to bet on something like that. So what I lean on is the fact that have equities discounted that, right? So it seems crazy to say, can you discount a recession that hasn't happened yet? A lot of the indicators that I'm looking at say exactly that, right? Equity correlations are high, valuation spreads are wide, leading indicators are contractionary, you know, especially when it relates to the globe. You say, well, the globe is in a recession, even though that the U.S. isn't, and we haven't had severe job losses. You start to put together this mosaic of globally, it looks pretty bad. Stocks are flagging a lot of these panicky indicators, and that usually creates an opportunity. I'd rather lean on that than I would saying the economy is more likely to get worse and we can't bottom without you know, a recessionary bottom. Not so sure about that when you look through history. So the bottom line is you may have a recession in 2023, but unless it's a very, very severe recession, I think that you're starting to increase the odds that stocks have already discounted. So- we may have a recession, but we may not, is, I guess, the other side of that coin, which not a lot of people are talking about. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I, I'll go with the may not, because, again, it sort of depends on how you define recessions. I mean, ultimately, it's the NBER's job to say, you know, do we have a sustained and substantial job loss to sort of declare an NBER recession? Don't know. Um, maybe they rely more on the unemployment rate than it is sort of job loss. Because again, in 70, 80, and 90 in the US, on a year-on-year basis, non-farm payrolls never contracted. Neither did real consumption spending. So what you get is an increase in the unemployment rate. So you might get that. That's definitely possible. How much, how deep it will hurt real GDP growth or consumer spending is, I think, a little less clear. So, you know, again, it could be one of those things where did we see a mild recession this year? Maybe. Do we see another mild recession Next year, maybe. But again, how does it translate back to equities? Less clear to me that it's a very causal driver and more that I'd like to rely on the discounting mechanism framework that I, I think has been more predictive. You mentioned uh, uh, sort of briefly, but I'd like to kind of explore it a little bit more. Oil prices—they've um, come down. You know, they—they they were up quite a bit. Um, not, you know, earlier in the year, they've come down a bit. What does the decline in oil prices tell you about the potential for recovery or a recession? How does that uh, metric, I guess, uh, you know, factor into your thinking? Yeah, it's funny. There are very few univariate, I'm going to call it a macro factor, uh, that really impacts 
recessionary predictions. And I think, you, you know, I've certainly said on this webcast that there's one, one worrying factor about a causal predictor of recessions. It is crude prices. And we saw that last year, $120 a barrel. We certainly saw the spike. We saw the drawdown in real incomes for the U.S. consumer. It acts like a tax. It certainly acts like a headwind. Was it high enough to create a trigger for a recession? No, because it was still only 5% of consumer spending, which is much less than it was in the, in the 1970s and much less of an impact on GDP. So in some ways, energy created the drag on the economy that we've seen here. Fast forward to today, are we in that position currently? No, we are not. And what has happened over the last five months is that crude oil has gone down by about 20%. I don't know exactly where we are today, but about 20% on a month-end basis, even more on a daily basis from that 120 peak. So what can we, we can look at history. We know certainly that it is a stimulus, right, for the U.S. consumer about how it can be a headwind, it can also be a tailwind. So we can speak through history and we can say, okay, what usually happens the year following this, let's call it stimulus from the contraction in crude oil? And you can see that real consumer spending is higher than baseline. Stocks are often higher than baseline. This is despite the fact that earnings is often lower than baseline, right? Because earnings can be a, a very lagging indicator of turning points. The industrial economy is usually lower than baseline, but all cyclical sectors have higher odds than defensive sectors. So your top positions in this case tend to be consumer discretionary and materials, which are really the, off the plays of offense, and energy, consumer staples, utilities, all of those, I'm going to call energy defensive in this situation, tends to lag or tends to underperform. So I think that the pattern to really recognize is while we're all focused on these headwinds of the inverted yield curve and the Fed hiking interest rates, we may very well be missing the stimulus from the contraction in crude oil that has this very clear pattern historically that we should at least acknowledge and recognize. So this this is a good time to talk about your top three sectors and then maybe we'll go into your bottom three sectors. But what are the sectors you're looking at? Um, and also, you know, around energy and we have a, we have a slide we're going to show there, but I don't want to give it away. So maybe tell us kind of where where the opportunities you're looking at and um, and what that means for investors. Top two sectors have really not changed at all, which is consumer discretionary and financials, although. Um, I might I might swap them out later on. But what I think is really. Uh, the opportunity now, and it has been read in my IRU or investment scorecard, but it's going to be upgraded uh, for that purpose, which is materials. And it's really within materials, which is metals and mining. And you just heard me quote a stat that it's not just that stat that's made me sort of more optimistic on metals and mining stocks, which is they tend to be that early cycle-ish recovery play. So that pattern, again, is a pattern I want to recognize. And it shows you, again, despite the fact that we haven't been in a recession, a classic recession, meaning that we haven't lost jobs that we had in prior recessions, the manufacturing economy is at recessionary levels. So we can go forward and say, okay, if you are willing to look out, because it certainly can go lower, let's just look through a potential bottom, factor out a year out, you can actually go to our next slide. What typically works in that environment, you'll start to see a very clear split between what I would call commodity sensitive sectors. I think that there are a lot of investors that say energy industrials and materials are one thing, they're commodity sensitive, I want to own them or sell them together. 
And that's actually not really the case. The case historically is that energy you see on the far left only has 30% odds. It acts very defensive after that contraction in the manufacturing economy, while industrials and materials act more like offense. So from that perspective, I think that materials is sort of, you know, starting to be, and I'll, I'll include industrials in there because I think lower down the cap spectrum, industrials have some real juice, like in mid-cap industrials, which we've talked about. But mid-cap industrials and materials, uh, specifically metals and mining, would be the three rank now in my top three. There's actually, there's a cool... Uh, uh, a question from an advisor which fits into this is thoughts on gold right now, given the uncertainty we're seeing. So how does that factor into the metals and mining thesis? I know that anybody who's listening to this webcast knows that I sort of throw gold into all of the commodity buckets and say, if there's one thing, you know, I know people focus on real rates. I know people focus on the dollar. I know people focus on a lot of things for gold. I can't, ha I can't find a consistent correlation historically with the exception of commodities. Now, that said, I think that this deviation is actually quite bullish for gold because it's more metals and mining, right? That's the big corollary relative to energy. So, yes, crude oil and gold and copper, and they're all commodities together, but you also see this real split. And what you're seeing is gold companies act much, much more like metals and mining, right? You have the same relative valuation that you actually have in energy. And I think I put this up on my charts of the week. We don't have it here. But go and look at my LinkedIn feed on charts of the week. You'll see that, and you know, that metals and mining stocks like energy stocks have really never been cheaper on free cash flow, on price to book, on price to earnings, like literally whatever way you want to measure it. So you go, okay, but that's the problem is the margins are going to come down, right? They're so cheap because we're at peak margins these. I get it. So you can say that given these bottom decile levels, if we knew that margins will come down, will the stock still outperform? And the answer is actually It is not yes in energy stocks. Energy stocks do not look through margin or earnings decline. Metals and mining and gold stocks do have this historical pattern of actually outperforming despite the fact that fundamentals get worse. And the reason why that happens is because from these levels, you can expand multiples, right? So gold is in the same situation as mining and I grow in copper. They all look very similar from a data perspective. And I think that that is a really good setup, despite what you think about the dollar and real interest rates and other things for gold. So I think that the, there is a much more positive risk reward now for gold than there was in the last. I mean, you're comparing uh, sort of energy to the mining sector. Are you suggesting that potentially investors could rotate some of that money out of the energy sector and into metals and mining? Is that, um, you know, a potential strategy there? I would. I hope that that rotation in some ways has already started. So I did downgrade, you know, energy to, a, you know, a neutral at best. And I, I think it's looking more like a negative reward to me. The negatives keep piling up. So when I look at, you know, I, I get the fact that supply and demand is in balance and, and maybe it's actually going to be, you know, a slight deficit. But when you look historically at leading indicators where they are, that's been a negative for crude oil and for uh, energy stocks on a relative performance basis. When you look at this massive disconnect that we've seen between energy stocks relative performance and this contraction in crude oil, that's been negative for energy relative performance. When you also look at these ISM indicators, that's been negative for energy performance. There's a lot of headwinds now piling up in the energy sector, and there's only one tailwind, which is valuation. 
And I'm not saying maybe energy won't be the worst sector because of that valuation support. But when you look back through history, valuation can't be the only reason to own the sector. I mean, like, like the rest of commodities, we're now at sort of, I'll call it peak-ish fundamentals. We're within the top 10% of our we operating margins. So unlike last year, where I had a portfolio manager ask me, why would you own energy? Now, essentially, the earnings expectations are, are negative next year. And I said, well, I, I think that earnings expectations might be wrong because you're really, despite the recovery, only back into sort of median ROE, median operating margin. So there's no reason to necessarily affect, expect as the globe is recovering and as we haven't made these sort of new highs in fundamentals for the stocks to actually have a contraction in earnings. But now, given peak fundamentals and given the fact that we see global leading indicators, you know, not only decelerating, but in some cases, be at bottom decile levels, this setup looks a lot different to me. So you could have an earnings contraction. So when you sweep back through history, you go, hey, can energy stocks, regardless of how cheap they are, look through this contraction? Historically, they haven't. Right. So if you want to bet as an investor that it's going to be different this time, that's fine. But that's what I'm seeing that I would rather bet on. Metals and mining is completely different, tends to be geared towards offense. It also has already seen a contraction in earnings, and that tends to be the time you want to start looking. And oh, by the way, you have valuation support as well. So bottom three sectors. Anything with defense, right? So uh, consumer staples for certain. I would say that the pharmaceutical area within healthcare is looking very, very similar to that consumer staples. You're back to sort of median levels on relative valuation or a little bit above median with a secular decline in margins. So the risk reward uh, looks much less compelling. And then my always bottom three, the perennial bottom in my, uh, in my three is utilities. It's the ultimate classically defensive sector, which obviously, you know, given the setup that I, I see that the equity markets have already discounted a recession that didn't happen yet, or have discounted much of a recession that hasn't happened yet. Uh, utility stocks still are relatively expensive. And I think that even regardless of what you think of the upside in equities, I think it's important for investors to remember the margin of safety within downside risk of equity markets is really defined by relative valuation starting points. And that has been no different this time. And we're seeing that certainly utilities have underperformed. And part of that reason is because despite the fact that the news has been quite poor this year, the relative starting point for defensive sectors has already been elevated. And that really happened in the June low. And that's when we went from, you know, I'm going to pick on consumer staples because utilities really started expensive and became egregiously expensive. Consumer staples started at relatively cheap levels and has already become expensive. And that happened really in a snapshot from between January and February into that initial low in June. So again, your margin of safety with this relative valuation change changes. It changed dramatically in June towards beta being cheap, cyclicals being cheap, as opposed to defense being cheap. Right. So that shift is something you have to respect, almost regardless of what you think about as the risk reward for the overall market. So I think that defensive sectors might not be as defensive as you think, even in a downside market. There is a question, and I think it's probably in a lot of people's minds about technology. Where does technology go next year? Is there a difference for opportunities in, in larger caps and smaller caps? What are your thoughts on tech? Yeah, I think it's blocked. Um, and in some ways, like, you know, poker players often call it, you know, pair of tubes. 
Um, and I think that that's the problem with technology. Sure, the fundamentals are fine. We are at you know really strong margins, although we've seen a little bit of a margin decline, but it doesn't seem it to be anything egregious. The real problem with technology stocks, specifically at, at, you know, on a cap-weighted basis, is your starting point on relative valuation. So this is different than anything over the past 10 years. Remember, when technology really started to be defined leadership over the, the better part of the last decade, you had the double tailwinds of a really strong margin expansion coming out of the recession, which was the great financial crisis, and bottom quartile relative valuations. So fast forward to today, you're, at, you're, not, you're still you've fallen out of the top quartile, but you're close, right? So you're, you know, you're at the high 70, I mean, low 70th percentile. So you're still certainly you know, in that expensive range, not where we started 10 years ago, and margins have really essentially never been higher. So there's you know, potential more downside risk. So I think that that risk reward tends to be negative. It doesn't necessarily mean that the sector has to be assured. I think that there are better shorts in the market, which is defense, right? Which has worse fundamentals and worse relative valuation in some ways. But at the same time, when you go down the cap spectrum, it looks a little better each sort of decile you go down, meaning the stocks look a little less expensive and margins look a little less extended. So from that perspective, if you felt like you really needed technology exposure, mid-cap technology looks more like mid-cap industrials to me. You have relative valuation support, you have very wide valuation spreads, there's a lot of fear. So I think that that could be a situation, but I'd still prefer uh, industrials and materials over technology. And, and just on uh, to follow up, there's another question uh, related to technology. Um, we, we're seeing high demands for employees in some sectors, while other industries like tech are letting people go. Is this showing some structural shifts happening in the economy? It could. I mean, we certainly saw that in 2000, right? Um, if you remember, and you might not remember because I studied the data, and I, I sort of lived through that layoff uh, period where the only people that you knew that lost their job were in the technology sector. Um, and that was, I think we had the unemployment rate go from in the fours to almost seven, right? But it was a very, I'll, I'll call it a light recession relative to where the unemployment rate stopped and where it was very specific in that vertical. Now that didn't translate, that light trans, you know, light recession did not translate to a light correction in the stock market. It was basically a three-year decline. It was peak to drop, what, a little bit over 50%, I think, uh, depending on if you look at month-end data. So that doesn't always show, it doesn't always translate to the, to the decline in the equity markets. But is it, is it a structural shift? Well, technology, as much as it was certainly the, the palpable decline in the stock market and in some ways in the job market, it set the stage for really the emphasis of technology to be dominant over the following decade. So, you know, in some ways for an equity market investor, you have to make sure that you don't confuse the two. <laughs> so sometimes growth is a good opportunity to be sort of along for the ride in whatever the equity basket is that's attached to that theme. But sometimes stocks discounted way in advance, right? Which is what we saw during the NASDAQ bubble. So if that was actually ironically, a positive shift for technology from an economic perspective. You just didn't participate from an equity market perspective. So we could be saying the opposite in the sense that maybe over the next decade, we will be more capital intensive than we will be capital light in technology or technology heavy from an investment perspective. But again, I'd caution the fact that I don't know that that's going to 
effectively translate to the stocks, because I think more of that is defined by your relative valuation starting points and the growth trajectory and the secular trend. Um, so we've talked a lot about equities. Let's move to uh, to bonds. Um, where do you see the bond outlook for 2023? And is the 60-40 portfolio back? Um, are we going to see more of that? I think it could be. And I think that we've seen some of that over the last three months. And again, focusing on the data, the data is dramatically different in the bond market now than it was at the start of the year. I mean, I'll throw off, the, you know, at least sort of three data points that the, the run rate of inflation, which, you know, from a CPI perspective is let's call it between uh, three and five. Look, a pinpoint is four. That's your average annualized run rate over the last three months. That includes that shelter cost, right? So it is slowing, slowing from four. Well, that's around where your two-year treasury yield is. So when you look at that parity, right, which is not where we started the year, right, but which is where they're ending the year, well, that tilts your favor in terms of bonds, even relative to stocks. And then another point, which is the average dividend yield in, let's call it your, your most yieldy, stable sector of utilities, well, now the two-year treasury yield is yielding more than the average utility yield for the first time since 2007, and we're in the top quartile range since 1990. So that, again, shifts your odds of bonds total returns even being better than stocks. And that happens more often than you would think um, when they can be both up together, again, from a total return perspective, not necessarily from a price perspective, but from a total return perspective, they can be both up together and bonds beat stocks 20% of the time. So those two things sort of point you into this massive data change and being positive for bonds. And then I'll throw out a third, which is real rates on at least inflation expectations are now above two or around two uh, and in the top quartile of their range, which again shifts your eyes. So I think that the data has changed dramatically. And I think that that's a really positive setup for the fixed income market on a go forward basis. And I think it increases the likelihood that what you could see in 2023 again, despite the fact that we still have recession risk, would be both stocks and bonds up by double digits, which is fairly rare, but that's what the data is looking like. This is a, a pretty different from just a few months ago when everyone was saying, you know, we're losing money in both. Um, so is this, a, you know, sounds like a good time to maybe be an investor then um, if you have both of these asset classes looking positive? Well, that's what I always say is, you know, I mean, I'm an equity market investor, but I, I think that any investor has to be really comfortable in uncomfortable times. Um, and that's certainly what you need to be willing to do. And it's certainly an uncomfortable time and that usually breeds opportunity. And those are certainly the opportunities that I'm seeing in the data. Great. Uh, we have, a, you know, one minute left. Any last uh, words of wisdom for our, for our audience today? No, I mean, I think that, you know, as it relates to equities and fixed income, stick to whatever plan you have laid out, right? The worst thing that you can do in some ways is, is to, you know, pivot at the wrong time. I've seen, you know, more, the, you know, the saying is, I forget who actually was the quote, but the only person who gets hurt on the roller coaster is the jumpers. So in some ways, think about why you owned equities and why you own bonds, and those reasons likely still apply. And I will say, as it relates to equities, it's the only asset class that actually compounds up 8% average returns over time, over years and years and years. And I think that that's important to recognize that's why you own equities. And in some ways, the only way you achieve those 8% returns is riding through the down 15 to 20% markets. Great. Um, I will leave it there. Uh, looking forward to chatting again. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot more to say after Jerome Powell's uh, speech today. So I'm sure the next chat will be great. Uh, thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.